Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, it may sound like something out of a disaster movie, but this one was all too real. We find out what caused a massive 100-meter tsunami in northern BC in November of 2020. What destruction did it cause? And how is it that we had very little idea that it had happened, let alone where? We dive into the stranger side of Wikipedia with a University of Michigan senior who turned wiki oddities into a social media presence with more than one million followers. We meet a Canadian who went to Ukraine to fight, but wound up on the front lines of the humanitarian effort instead. But first, with a federal budget on the way this week and expectations of a hike in defense spending, we look at what is needed and what we can actually expect. may have seen today that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky spoke to the UN Security Council via video. He talked about Russia's military needing to be brought to justice immediately for war crimes. He made that plea again as evidence continued to emerge of civilian massacres carried out by Russian forces on the outskirts of the capital, Kiev. Zelensky, through a translator, says Russian forces are responsible for atrocities in Ukraine. The images, particularly from the town of Bucha, have stirred global revulsion, led to demands for tougher sanctions and war crime prosecutions against Russia. They've also led to a number of countries expelling Russian diplomats. Many, Germany, Italy, Spain, Slovenia, Denmark, Romania, Sweden, France, the EU, Estonia, and Latvia, and Lithuania, whose ambassador we'll talk to later in the show. But not us, not Canada. We're considering following the lead, apparently. Now, the opposition has been calling for the ouster of Russian diplomats, the ambassador in particular, since the beginning of the invasion, but apparently suggesting it would lead to retaliation. Uh, we've decided not to. We want to retain our diplomatic presence in Moscow, allegedly, to ensure an accurate flow of information. Although when I was there interviewing people, I, I don't ever remember there being a flow of information to any Canadian official there that we were cut off from the Kremlin. Everyone's cut off from the Kremlin. So why we haven't decided to follow suit is a mystery to me. I'd like to know what you think. 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. Should we start giving the boot to Russian diplomatic staff in this country, following the lead of many, many, many other countries after the kinds of atrocities we've seen in Bucha and we expect to see elsewhere in Ukraine as Russian forces withdraw for now? Well, that war is into its 42nd day. The repercussions continue to reverberate around the world, including here at home, not just when it comes to not uh, giving the boot to diplomats. Defense Minister Anita Anand said this recently at the Ottawa Conference on Security and Defense uh, about what Canada needs to be to take its rightful place in these kinds of crises. What can a country like ours, an incredible country like ours, bring to the table when the international order upon which we all rely is in such clear and present danger. That was said a few weeks ago. So is Canada doing enough? Certainly the words are pretty, uh, but actions, are we doing enough? Joining me now is Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary and an expert in Canadian defense policy. Rob, thanks so much for being here tonight. My pleasure, Ben. You wrote uh, an op-ed recently for the National Post called Canada is doing as little as it can and hoping no one notices, um, which is pretty pointed. And I was wondering what led you to that conclusion and has it changed at all since that was written? No, because, I mean, we start, the thing that really drove me to um, write that is, of course, that was the period in time in which we had Poland, the Czechs, 
and the Slovak leadership going into Kiev, risking their lives, trying to provide real aid to the Ukrainians. And looking at what Canada has done, um, if anything, I think the polite term would be appease Russia in, in the initial phases. And then just basically be a follower. Um, I suspect, you know, following what you said in your introduction, we will probably follow and expel the ambassador um, from Russia. But in terms of any leadership, in terms of anything that goes out of the sort of collective decisions of, um, of NATO and Europe, we see nothing. In the one phase, and, and I'd offer a slight correction. You said, uh, you know, in your introduction, you said it's the 42nd day of the war. And that's True. wrong, of course, because yeah, it's actually I mean, the eighth year and 42nd day of the war. Ex- yes. Exactly. I mean, yeah. remember, the fighting never stopped in the Domus region. And uh, of course, the seizure of Crimea is not an annexation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an invasion. And, uh, and within that period of time, Canada went out of its way to, to assure the Russians that uh, we did not associate what they were doing in, in the Ukraine would interfere with our cooperation with them in the Arctic. Uh, the Harper government had offered the Ukrainians um, uh, a radar sat imagery, which would provide them with a means of being able to track some of the Russian motion as the war continues at that point. The Liberals cancelled that. There was no lethal aid. It was only brought forward when the when the resumption of fighting occurred in the second phase of the war. And with the exception of the continued commitment to the um, uh, the trainers and the um, commitment to Latvia, we do nothing. And even in regards to the trainers, we pull them out at a time that they probably could have provided a deterrent effect if us, the Brits and the Americans had said, we're leaving our troops in here, Russia, if you harm them, that's, uh, that, that, of course, is your responsibility. And we did none of that. And today we're seeing an article from John Iveson, of course, who writes for the National Post, for Post Media, apparently that uh, there had been a proposal on the table from people here to provide uh, Ukraine with Harpoon Block 11 anti-ship missiles. Of course, uh, you know, the areas along that south coast, Odessa, Mariupol, uh, clearly Mariupol, but Odessa specifically are, are in danger. And this was supposed to try to, in some ways, mitigate that threat from the sea. But again, uh, no movement. We always have to be a little cautious. I mean, we may be moving. Something like this has to be done very subtly. It has to be done out of the limelight if it's to be done effectively. In other words, these weapons have to just suddenly show up in the Rus- uh, in the Ukrainian hands so the Russians can't really get a determination of the pipeline going. So we have to give the government a, a benefit of the doubt in that regard. But if uh, Ivinson is correct, that in fact that the government is rebuffing to send it, it would be following a pattern of behavior that has been established since the government's been elected. So what do you think lies behind it? I mean, in the past, there was always this notion that Canada could somehow play sort of bridge between Russia or between the Soviet Union at the time and and the Americans that we were somehow, you know, we could be a peacemaker and all this. Do you think that's a hangover from those days, not recognizing perhaps that Vladimir Putin's regime doesn't really do peacemaking or doesn't doesn't deal with the Canada's of the world? Well, I mean, I've got two answers to that. I mean, first of all, I, you know, anybody that really understood Canada's role, we were a full contributor to NATO. Um, you know, we, we had the peace initiative with Pierre Trudeau, but that was for a very fleeting moment where I think there were some sort of visions of uh, of being able to act as a as an intermediate with the changing nuclear balance that was occurring at the time. So, 
I think that anyone that was carefully observing it was seeing that, in fact, no, Canada did do its part as a as a full member of NATO in that regards, and that was to be able to deter and not deter fight the Russians. Now, we we move forward though in terms of why Canada is doing this. First of all. Canada has shown, the, well, the current government has shown no interest in developing a former foreign policy. So we have a defense policy that was developed back in 2017. And that's, of course, going, what, three, five years ago. Um, but we've had no official foreign policy. We know in regards to the treatment of China, we're the only eyes five country that still hasn't come to the recognition that the Chinese um, industries are, in fact, state-run entities and have refused to to make a judgment the way that the Australians, Brits, New Zealands, and Americans have. And so you see this continued policy of basically not wanting to offend authoritarian states. Um, I don't know what drives it. I don't know what someone, you know, anyone within the PMO thinks that somehow this is an appropriate foreign policy, but it is, it is a pattern of behavior that we've seen since 2015. Yeah, I mean... Perhaps it's just a lack of planning. I mean, to some extent, there is no, if there is no plan, then, then, you know, they just sort of go from crisis to crisis. Well, that's possible too. But I mean, we have to give the government credit for the, you, you may agree or disagree with what they're doing in response to the other existential threat that Canada faces, which is climate change. They do have a plan. Um, you know, here in Alberta, there is a, a lot of disagreement in terms of the nature of the plan, but there is a long-term plan. So mm -hmm. they have indicated that where there is political will, they can plan and they can plan quite well. Um, it seems to be either a complete disinterest in terms of what we would characterize as a changing geopolitical environment or perhaps it's the continued uh, problem that we've often faced with successive Canadian governments, not just this one, of wishful thinking and knowing that ultimately the Americans are there to protect us. I'm speaking with Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary and an expert in Canadian defence policy. After this, we'll talk about the upcoming budget because we're expecting to see more defence spending in there. And I'm curious, Rob, to know what you think is coming and what you think we won't see. That's next. I'm speaking with Rob Hubert. He's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary, an expert in Canadian defense policy. We've been discussing Canada's military support for Ukraine, whether we're doing enough. Part of the problem, of course, is this goes back well into the Harper years as well as a lack of defense spending means we don't have much to give these days. Uh, here's Defense Minister Anita Anand uh, recently at the Ottawa Conference on Security and Defense about what her plans are for the future. We need a well-equipped military that can defend our country and contribute to continental and global security. And not for a moment does this leave my mind. And I'm pressing and pressing to ensure that we, as a government, are able to step up to support and invest in a well-equipped military that can defend our country and contribute to continental and global security. Defense Minister Anita Anand there. Rob, what do you, I mean, we know that we're way below the NATO's 2% uh, benchmark for defense spending. I don't think there's any point in getting there. We wouldn't be able to spend all that money that quickly given the procurement system. But what should we be looking for in this budget? What would be satisfactory, do you think? Well, I mean, we can start off by, of course, recognizing we are 1.4%. I think that puts us uh, the fifth lowest at the bottom in terms of NATO, just so that we can have a full appreciation 
Um, one of the quick answers always is, well, do what you said you were going to do in 2017. Um, when the defense policy came out, there was a lot of hullabaloo that was fully costed, uh, said that they were going to take two terms to do it. They were confident they were going to be reelected and to be able to do so. And of course, here we are in 2022 in a, a rapidly changing geopolitical environment where I think the threat has been laid bare to us, at least from the Russian perspective. We're still sleepwalking about the Chinese to a certain degree, and we haven't done any of it. We, we, we supposedly have some form of a decision with the C-35s, but if you read the announcements, or F-35s, I should say, right. if you read it carefully, it's uh, just saying, well, we're going to negotiate. Um, and if that negotiations fail, we'll go to our second choice. I mean, that's not a decision in my mind. We're still a long way off in terms of seeing steel being cut for the um, for the the um, uh, Canadian surface combatant. No discussions on submarines and NORAD modernization. Um, you know, most people are thinking, okay, well, we have to update a few of the radar sites up. In- in the North Warning System, and it'll do it. The problem is with the type of systems that the Russians have now developed and that we know the Chinese are developing, you need a lot more. And it's got to go way beyond what they were talking about 2017. And so if we're going to actually do what she says we're going to do, which is to provide for continental defense, do all the stuff that you said, but also take care of all the new threats that have developed since that point. And it's going to be quite expensive i don't think there's no sugarcoating it if it's done yeah i mean where do you i think one of the problems the military has been having too and i mean you know is that is that we've asked we've called on the military to do so much now when it comes to to civil defense when it comes to the pandemic when it came you know floods fires you name it um it feels like we need to prioritize something and then start there and just build up and build up from there this is the dangerous part. We've changed the, the normative understanding of why we have a military. Uh, part of it is, of course, the, the, the political discourse that we get from our leadership that our forces are there to shovel snow. They're there to go to the, uh, to the old folks' homes uh, when COVID strikes. They're there to provide assistance when there's uh, any type of power outage. And this has created a mis- misperception that our military is a constabulatory force. And the reality is in this international environment that's actually been developing clearly since at least 2008, if not earlier, you still have to be able to fight. You still have to be able to deter. You need to be able to do the very nasty things that a military does. And you can't have it all. That's not 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 on the budget that we're providing, not with the numbers. I mean, 65,000 troops to do all of this? Come on. Uh, it just doesn't get done. And so what's happened is that Quite frankly, we look very directionless in terms of understanding what is necessary to provide the proper security in a very nasty international system. That means having the ability to kill and to be killed. I mean, that is what a military, in essence, is all about. We certainly saw that in Afghanistan. Um I guess the last question, because I asked everyone else, Rob, should we expel the Russian ambassador? Is that, is, do you think that's, it seems in some ways purely symbolic, but at this point, it seems purely symbolic. It seems unfortunately symbolic not to do it. 
Well, it goes beyond symbolic not to do it, uh, because we get back into this pattern of appeasement for the Russians. Um, you know, we think about the Russians launching their, their the initiation of this war um, in 2014. We think about the huge casualties to the Russian forces uh, pushed on the um, on the Georgians. They, you know, once again, it's hard to get a, a number, but they're probably in the tens of thousands, if not higher. And yet we're sitting there saying, well, we can still do business with Putin and Lavrov and all all the rest. And I just don't understand that thinking. So to not expel the Russian um, uh, ambassador at this point is suggesting that we're not taking it that particular serious in terms of what they have done, particularly when you think about the obvious war crimes that are going on at this point in time. And so. I think that there, it goes beyond symbolism if we keep them. It sends a s- clear signal to, to the Russian administration that we're not going to be serious on any of this, even on the symbolic side. Rob Hubert, thank you so much for your time. I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon. We'll be seeing this budget in a few days. We'll see, what, uh, we'll see what's in there. Sounds good, Ben. I look forward to it. We're going to talk Wikipedia in this half hour. I don't know how you use it. I, I use it like like a reporter does. I, I look up things quickly to see if I'm right or if I've forgotten something, a date, um, you know, something that I may have forgotten happened, the exact order, you know, basically news you can use kind of information. Uh, but there's a lot on Wikipedia. Apparently, there are 55 million articles on Wikipedia. I'll have to look that up to see if it's true, but I think there are 55 million articles on w- Wikipedia, according to my next guest. Do you trust Wikipedia? Let me know, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. I'm always amazed at how quickly it's updated. Literally, something can happen like a, an Oscar win, for instance. And if you go look at that actor or that movie, it's already up within seconds. But again, for most of us, Wikipedia is probably just a way to check something out quickly, find a fact, confirm a date, read up on something you've heard about or something you may have forgotten. But if you really dive into the site, it turns out there are lots of strange things there to be discovered. And that is exactly what my next next guest found out during the early days of the pandemic. Mining Wikipedia for interesting information, odd stories, or just plain curious stuff. For example, some posts recently on a social media site that she created about Wikipedia say that the entry for the Paulo Sullivan Band, for instance, where all four members of the Paulo Sullivan Band are called, you got it, Paulo Sullivan. Or that the town of Dull in Scotland is paired with the town of Boring in Oregon. You get the idea. Well, that gig, so to speak, has turned into a real social media presence with more than a million followers on Instagram and Twitter. Joining me now from Ann Arbor in Michigan is University of Michigan senior, majoring in neuroscience, no less, Annie Rorida, creator of the Depths of Wiki. Annie, thank you so much for joining me to share your story. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So tell me a bit about, I mean, lots of people use Wikipedia. Uh, I'm not sure many or too many appreciate it the way you do. So tell me about your, your sort of how you discovered that Wikipedia was more than just sort of a big Encyclopedia Britannica. It was something far more fascinating if you went digging. Well, I've used Wikipedia since I was really young. I love it. I love getting lost in Wikipedia rabbit holes and looking up after an hour and realizing that you don't know how you started learning about how cottage cheese gets made, but somehow you just kept clicking the links. Um, I uh, started really diving into Wikipedia rabbit holes during the early quarantine. And in April of 2020, I started posting my favorite screenshots onto an Instagram account called Depths of Wikipedia. 
it's been a little bit over two years now and it, it really blew up. Um, so I've highlighted, uh, it's gotta be at least a thousand different funny Wikipedia snippets by now. And I keep finding more. I, I gather that it started off like all things that, that get very popular. It started off relatively slowly and then accelerated very quickly. Um, how did that happen? It's, it's tough to say. I, um, I lost my internship um, during the early pandemic. It got canceled. I was supposed to travel to Boston. So I had a lot of time on my hands because I had a part-time job. But I mean, a lot of people were out of work at the time. So I really dedicated quite a bit of time and effort into this Instagram account. And it didn't have very many followers besides my friends for the first few months. But um, eventually it got more followers when an influencer noticed it and started resharing some of them. And since then, it's really blown up. It's, the Instagram is at over 800,000 followers now. Twitter has 300,000 something. So it's it's kind of mind-boggling. I was going to say all that from your dorm room at the University of Michigan. That's pretty phenomenal. You must be, I mean, you must be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, the the Wikipedia community is great too. I had done a few like very small Wikipedia edits um, in the past, but I really started diving into Wikipedia editing a little bit after starting the account because people that are dedicated Wikipedia editors reached out and they said like, Hey, like, this is so fun. You should get more involved with Wikipedia. You're clearly very interested in it. And since then I've, I've really come to love this hobby. I think that there's a lot of different um, places that different people can help out in Wikipedia, whether you're, you want to be a copy editor, whether you want to like find notability cases, whether you want to protect against vandalism, there's like really a place for all sorts of minds. And I absolutely love Wikipedia. Um, I'm on like a different level now that I contribute to it so much. I was going to say, I mean, one of the things you, that was pointed out is that you like it because it's sort of how the internet should be. It's kind of collaborative and friendly and, 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 and informative as opposed to kind of point scoring and troll, troll ridden. But, but before we get there, I just wanted to ask you what kind of things you like, what first struck you about Wikipedia? What did you start posting early and, and what kind of information are you really looking for? Oh, it really depends. Um, one of my first posts was about um, like a researcher who noticed that one of the rides at Disneyland or Disney World would cure kidney stones because of the way it like shook the kidneys. So he, he rode uh, one of the rides with a model kidney. I thought that was so funny. I thought the image made me laugh. This like kind of old, like frumpy man with a model kidney that made me laugh. Um, and I think that a lot of the things I post are funny stories like that. There's kind of a nerdy bend, like a sciencey, researchy bend, because um, that's my interest. Some are just out of context photos that re- really don't make any sense without a description. And um, I, let me think of some examples. Um, there's a category on Wikimedia Commons called animal shaped breads. And volunteers have organized all the all the photos on Wikimedia Commons that are breads shaped like animals. Um, I don't know if that is overtly funny, but it brings a smile to my face at least. It is um, these and, days, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Another photo that I that I always say is my favorite. It's from the article on cow tipping, right. and it's a photo of a cow lying on her side, and the caption is a cow lying on her side is not immobilized. She can rise whenever she chooses. 
And it really captured my quarantine mindset, which is why I liked it so much. It seems it seems a bit self-evident they'd be able to get up, but I've seen that picture. It's a great picture. Um, what have been some of the more popular ones? I mean, what you like and what other people like are always kind of different. Are, are, what have been sort of the more the more popular posts you've put up? That is a good question. Um, lately, there have been a few that have taken off. One was um, from the article Bar Jokes. A guy walks into a bar, that type of joke. Right. And it was this detail that said that the earliest known example of a bar joke is from Sumeria. And it, it dates back several thousand years BC, 3,000 to 5,000 years BC. And it, it, this is the joke. A dog walks into a bar and says, I can't see a thing. I'll open this one. It's, it's really not funny. There's no, you're like, what? what what's what? funny about that? But it's funny, then, yeah, then, it's funny that it's 3,000 years old. Yeah. yeah, Wikipedia says, or said at the time, um, the, the humor has since been lost. It probably related to the Sumerian way of life. I was rather charmed by the concept of a joke being lost to time. And it made me think about all the memes that historians are going to have to study and, um, in, in time. And people really like the idea of that. I think some people started getting um, really motivated to like figure out the joke, to crack the joke. And eventually some Sumerian uh, language scholars actually did uh, like <laughs> tell me and tell social media <laughs> all these potential reasons why it could be funny. So that's one that did take off quite a bit lately. That is, that is fantastic. Um, how do you now, now that you have so many followers, obviously there's expectations, right? So how do you curate what it is that you're going to post? Because you must get lots of suggestions um, and you must be looking for things that are increasingly kind of novel or at least uh, worthy, of, worthy of the page. Yeah, I get the best direct messages in the world. I know some people on the internet get hate, but my inbox is just popping with people being like, Hey, look at, look, 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 look at this fun fact I found. I thought this was so fascinating. Um, so it really brings me joy to open my messages, but you're right. A lot of the things people send in, I have to say, okay, this is great, but I don't know if it's a good fit. Um, a lot of people send in things that I've already posted, which I try to avoid. Um, and I also, uh, it's really hard to put, put a name on the criteria, but, but if things are too niche, it's not really funny, but then if things are too general or like it's a fun fact that I think a lot of people already know, then I'll say no. Um, but I, I would say in general, my criteria, it's kind of just a little je ne sais quoi, something that makes me smile. Um, there's, there's no formula. So you sort of now have a sixth sense for what you think will be interesting to you and therefore work. I mean, you've managed to keep the page, I think, the, the Instagram page very true to what it started out as in many ways. Yeah, I... I'm sure that other people would do a different um, curation style, but people seem to like the things I choose. So I have no intentions to change. I'm speaking with Annie Rorada. Rorada, sorry, I'm going to get that wrong. Creator of Depths <laughs> of Wikipedia, also a neuroscience major at the University of Michigan. This is a page she started basically plumbing the depths of plunging to the depths of Wikipedia to find interesting and curious facts and now has over 800,000 followers on Instagram, more than 300,000 on Twitter. It has absolutely taken off. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about just why Wikipedia itself is so appealing uh, in what we often call sort of, you know, the swamp of the internet, that why Wikipedia has sort of maintained this purity to it uh, that people enjoy a collaborative, informative purity. And we'll be back with that. 
I'm back now with Annie Rowarda. She's the creator of Depths of Wikipedia, a page, I, a Instagram account. I definitely recommend you go look at uh, you and 800,000 others at this point and a Twitter feed with more than 300,000 followers. Really, it's about finding the unique and the curious on Wikipedia. Um, Annie, tell me a bit about, you, you do mention it in this interview you did with the New York Times recently, but there was something that you really enjoyed about Wikipedia itself in this greater sort of world of misinformation and disinformation and trolling and scoring points and politics. There's something kind of uh, interesting and, and, and uh, fundamentally good about Wikipedia, I gather. Well, yeah. I mean, there's something so beautiful and democratic and rare about finding a place on the internet where people are coming together to build something for the rest of humanity and while other like web 2.0 um, platforms like Facebook, YouTube, whatever, they really struggle with content moderation. The community moderation model that you see on Wikipedia, for example, it, it really gives me a lot of faith in humanity. You get to see all the different opinions, you know, debate whether this should be in the article or not. Um, and it's really exciting to me. I uh, heard Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia, he often says that the site was born out of the dot-com crash. The reason is that he developed it and then there stopped being very much money in, uh, you know, internet companies. And that's when they decided to do the volunteer nonprofit model. And I mean, in a lot of ways, it's better off for it because you don't have uh, like special interest in editing. It's really just seems to be, I mean, aside for some rogue PR firms or vandals, for the most part, it seems like it's just people who are really passionate about information access and who genuinely enjoy uh, writing encyclopedia articles in their free time. I think it's the best. I love it. One of the things that happens, though, when lots of passionate people get involved in something is that there tends to be a lot of arguing over what exactly belongs because everyone believes in their own uh, rightness in a certain way. Is there much in that? Do you see much of that from just from what you do in terms of Wikipedia, where people sort of duel over what exactly belongs uh, belongs in an article or not? Oh, absolutely. If you're on Wikipedia, there is a tab at the top that says talk page, or it just says talk, excuse me. And if you click on that, you get to see all these discussions that editors have had. And some of them are quite drama filled. Um, so it's, you know, should we include this photo? What about this phrasing? Is it, should we include all of this information about this person's pets? Stuff like that. Um, and it's, very eye-opening and also interesting and uh there's some deletion discussions also that you can read um wikipedia has its own well there's levels to being an editor so you can be just a joe schmo off the street and make edits and that's great but once you re reach certain statuses like being an admin or being on the for example arbitration committee your opinions about what wikipedia should be and what it should include they carry more weight um yeah, I didn't real. I didn't realize that. I had no idea that there were different levels of 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 people because things on Wikipedia are are these days are almost edited to the insta second. Like the, when it, when an event yes. happens, it's almost on <laughs> yes. Wikipedia before you can look it up. Definitely, um, there's I think a whole economy on Wikipedia, and like I said before, um, there are people who fit themselves into the Wikipedia puzzle by doing all sorts of different things. How do you make sure that what you're sharing 
is in fact legit because you never do know. I mean, I'm in I'm in the news business, right? Sometimes you see something, you think, "Wow, that's fascinating," and then you dig it into a, dig into a little bit and realize it's not exactly what it seems to be. How do you manage to sort of fact check? That is a good question. I used to not care so much. I would just screenshot Wikipedia and post it. But these days, I try to do more due 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 excuse me due diligence right. to make sure I'm not sharing, you know, for example, Wikipedia vandalism or um, sharing something that's really not a great style or doesn't have great uh, sourcing. So I do try my best to check the source um, on whatever Wikipedia fun fact I'm looking at. And if it checks out, I'll post it. But if the source isn't great or if the article isn't written well, I'll, I'll just change it. I'll just edit it to make it better rather than sharing a less than ideal uh, snippet. So if you see something you really like, you can actually go research it a bit and make make the Wikipedia article more correct for your purposes. I mean, yes. Well, but beca- I'm careful that I don't ever edit things and then post them. Like, I, I think it'd be a conflict of interest if I was editing something just to make it funny or interesting or weird and then post it. So I do try to avoid that. But if I am looking for something to post and I stumble upon you know, like a grammar error or a phrasing mistake or a bad source, I'll definitely fix it. I obviously had thought of you because Avril Lavigne was on the Grammys last night. She's Canadian, <laughs> she's Canadian to top it all off. And there's some, that's one of the other rumors out there. Like these are, you've also found things that are odd as well on, on Wikipedia, sort of rumors that have started that, that aren't necessarily. So how does that fit into, uh, to your, uh, your, oeuvre, so to speak, your work? Oh yeah. It's, Notability is is tough, and that's something that edit- editors talk about a lot. If there is a rumor that affects culture um, and is backed up by all sorts of secondary sources, then maybe it's notable enough for a Wikipedia article. Um, like just because Wikipedia has, I mean, I presume they have articles about you know QAnon stuff. That doesn't mean that Wikipedia is advocating for it. It just means it's saying this really affects culture. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, Wikipedia is definitely not a billboard. It's not a crystal ball where you can just write your theories or do your original research. But if, if something is backed up by all sorts of secondary sources, um, often it can be on Wikipedia. Because I should mention this in the New York Times article, one of the opening examples in the, in the article is something about that some people believe that Avril Lavigne died in 2003 and was replaced by a lookalike, right? which is clearly untrue, but an interesting <laughs> fact nonetheless. So what now, Annie, what now that you've, you've unleashed this, this successful and interesting venture, what will you do with it? That's the big question. So I'm about to graduate from the University of Michigan. I have a degree, or well, I'm about to have a degree in neuroscience. I saw myself for a long time becoming a teacher, a science teacher. Um, but for now, I think I'm going to put that on the back burner. And for now, I've been doing quite a bit of freelance writing, and I've really been enjoying that. Um, so when I graduate, I plan to continue writing. Um, and I've done some live comedy shows. And so I think the freelance uh, position will allow me to keep doing some comedy shows. And overall, just figure it out. But if all else fails, I'll go to grad school and become a teacher. And I will share the Wikipedia love in the classroom. Is there a wiki? I didn't look this up, but I really should have. Is there a Wikipedia page about you yet? <laughs> yes, there is. Um, <laughs> it, it, it popped up a few weeks ago. And I'm excited because when it first uh, when it first 
um, entered Wikipedia, it was not great. It was pretty short. It did not have great, um, great citations, but now it's looking pretty good. Um, I, I can't edit my own article. That would be a blatant conflict of interest. So it's a little weird to sit on the sidelines and watch it happen, but it's also cool. I think there's been maybe like a hundred independent editors that have worked on it. Wow. Crazy to see. Wow. That's like Wikipedia royalty. Annie Rarada, thank you so much (laughs) for your time. I appreciate it. And thank you. What a fascinating story. Good luck. Thank you. Well, the last half hour, we were talking about Wikipedia with Annie Rauerda at the University of Michigan, who created, just as a side gig, this uh, site called Depths of Wikipedia. It's both an Instagram and a Twitter page. It has more than a million combined followers on those two. And she really plums through uh, Wikipedia, looking for curious stuff, looking for interesting stuff. And I was wondering, do you use Wikipedia? Do you like it? Do you ever get caught in sort of a Wikipedia rabbit hole when you really start to look at one thing and find yourself reading for hours about many other things. Um, 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. Let me know how things go right for you or wrong for you, perhaps, depending if you have time on your hands or not, uh, to, to plunge into Wikipedia, to find curious stuff, curious facts. Let me know. I tend to use it very in a very utilitarian way, so I've never actually done that. I do that with YouTube, mind you, which is even worse to some extent, I would say. My next story, this next story, is in fact in Wikipedia under mega tsunamis. It sounds like something out of a disaster movie. A huge landslide hits a body of water, creates a 100-meter, 330-foot-high mega tsunami and does some destruction. But this one is very real. In fact, it happened in northern BC in November of 2020. This is what the Wikipedia entry to that event says. 2020, Elliott Creek, British Columbia, Canada. On the 28th of November 2020, unseasonably heavy rainfall triggered a landslide of approximately 18 million square meters uh, into a glacial lake at the head of Elliott Creek. The sudden displacement of water generated a 100-meter, 330-foot-high mega tsunami that cascaded down Elliott Creek into the, down the Southgate River to the head of Butte Inlet. Covering a distance of over 60 kilometers, the event generated a magnitude 5.0 earthquake and destroyed more than 8.5 kilometers of salmon fishing habitat, or salmon habitat, rather, along Elliott Creek. That, of course, is all included in a study published in Geophysical Research Letters. So we wanted to know more about it. Joining me now with more is one of the authors of that study. Brian Menunos is a professor in the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia and a Canada Research Chair in Glacial Change. Professor Menunos, thank you so much for being here tonight to tell us more about this fascinating story. Thank you, Ben. So, Brian, the, the headline, of course, is remarkable. Anytime anyone hears about a 100-meter-high tsunami, you stop and you stop and wonder. But I gather this happened without anyone really recognizing that it had taken place, or at least not to the to the uh, not to the grandeur of what had actually happened. What unfolded back in November 2020? Well, so this was a particularly large. Landslide, not uh, the largest in Canada, but certainly uh, one of the notable ones. And what had happened is that there was a a large chunk of rock that suddenly let go um, and descended a steep mountainside. And uh, to top it all off, that amount of rock went into uh, one of these alpine lakes and in doing so displaced a large amount of water 
which uh, sloshed up almost like a, you know, if you were sitting in a bathtub. Um, but unlike a bathtub, that, that water continued to go down uh, the Elliott Creek Channel and erode and deepen in an existing creek. But but the just the sheer size of it seems astounding to the to the layperson. I would say this was a massive uh, amount of water. Yeah, that's right, and and it is uh, one of the um, one of the phenomena that we we see in high mountain er- areas. That is, as glaciers uh, have retreated in the past, uh, as they continue to retreat, they can expose these uh, proglacial lakes that. In some cases, you may actually have uh, an ice fall, uh, a chunk of ice that descends a steep mountainside and uh, then hits a water. So, you know, for any listener, if you were standing on the edge of a a pond and you threw in a small pebble, you're going to see some ripples. Uh, Now throw in a much larger rock uh, or even one that's hard to to pick up. You're going to find that the size of the the wave, the displacement waves, really kind of uh, is dependent in large part on not only the size of the, the pebble or the boulder, but how, how far you sort of hold it over that surface. So that's the thing about, um, about gravity and acceleration. We, we have this ability of these, sm- in some cases, a uh, small amount of material, if it strikes a surface at a very fast velocity, then you're going to get a lot of displacement of water. So, so just for listeners understand just how much, how big was the rock and how much water moved at that point and how fast was it moving? Cause I gather this was quite, quite a phenomenon. Yeah. So one of the, one of the things that we did in this particular study is we, we had, we were fortunate enough to have geospatial data that we had collected as part of an ongoing research collaboration with the Hakai Institute, trying to assess how glaciers respond to climate. So we had a large area of the Hamathco ice field and adjacent terrain mapped uh, with fairly detailed um, uh, data. It's, it's known as laser altimetry. So this gives us an incredibly detailed topographic surface. And that's important because after one of these events happens, we can then quantify how big uh, a particular event was. So in the case of the Elliott Creek slide, it was something on the order of 18 million cubic meters. And as the uh, lead author of the study, Martin Gertzma, had uh, sort of characterized, if you took all of the automobiles in Canada, um, that would be more or less equivalent to the amount of mass that was suddenly released from this, this hillside. So this all falls into this body of water, creates this massive wave. What happens next? So once that, um, and, and I'll sort of back up for a second, the sure. actual detection of the, of the event was recorded with seismometers at different places um, throughout the world. And it's kind of hard to believe that um, you know, a um, medium-sized landslide in, in British Columbia can be detected, but it's largely that sound energy. And that was uh, collaborators that we have at uh, Columbia University um, using a seismic array to uh, detect that particular event. So 
Martin was alerted uh, by our colleague um, and they were looking for several weeks to, to find out where that particular event had happened. So once this, um, you know, once a slide like that um, travels down the hillside, um, depending if there's, if there was no lake, it would continue to run out over perhaps a, a regular surface. It might, uh, it might deposit itself for one or two kilometers. But in the case of Elliott Creek, it first hit directly above the lake, but there was so much momentum, so much energy that that slide continued uh, into the lake and in doing so displaced water and uh, in some cases sloshed up over 120 meters on the adjacent hillside. So, uh, but that of course didn't stop because when you release that much energy to the water, you release a lot of water and that water has to go someplace. And the easiest path was to continue down through the lake outlet and into the creek. So, I mean, I gather that, that once this water moved through that narrow, it, it, was, it was a lot of water for not a very large space. It did some serious, it did some quite significant, um, made some quite some significant changes to the landscape. That's right, Ben. So as that water um, exited the lake, uh, we, we don't believe that there was a, a dam at the lake outlet that suddenly let go, but rather um, it was a sort of a low-lying um, outlet of the lake. And that sort of, you can imagine almost a sheet, uh, a sheet flood coming out of that lake, perhaps uh, tens of meters deep, but much wider than the lake itself. And so as that water then encountered the creek, it it likely uh, concentrated again. And we can show this through some of the numerical modeling that was done. So uh, the nice thing about this particular study is we had great observational data, which we could also uh, validate using numerical models. I gather there was no one there at the time, obviously, but, 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 it, but it did do some significant damage, did it not? I mean, it, it, I gather it changed the landscape quite significantly downstream, or at least not downstream, it, but once it barreled through. It did. In some cases, um, along the, the Elliott Creek, it eroded um, and deepened that existing channel on, on the order of 50 to 70 meters in places. Wow. So that's a substantial amount of erosion. In some areas, there was a substantial widening of the channel. And partly um, due to the erosive nature of that particular flood, it would also dramatically altered um, salmon-bearing habitat. A landslide, a rock slide in northern BC back in November 2020 that few had known about until this research was done. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about just how common this now is, that glaciers are retreating, that this happens, and also the, the oddity that this is not the biggest of these sort of phenomenon that we've seen in the past. We'll get to that after this. I'm back with Brian Menounos, professor in the geography program at the University of Northern British Columbia, Canada Research Chair in Glacier Change and a Hakai Institute affiliate. We're talking about this just massive tsunami, 110 meters tall or high rather, um, that barreled through an area of northern BC back in November of 2020. 
uh, and caused significant damage. There was no one there at the time. In fact, I don't think most of us knew it had happened uh, until recently. We, I gather there was, Brian, there was, a, we knew something had happened because it had been picked up by, you know, size by seismologists um, far away, uh, but not quite sure exactly where it is. So how did you figure out where it had happened? The event was first detected by a colleague of ours, Lauren Ekstrom at the uh, Columbia University, and he manages a um, seismic array detector, uh, which includes a whole collection of seismographs that are used for earthquake detection. Depending on the sound energy uh, that is recorded at those devices, it the energy released by landslides is notably different from the typical landslide, sorry, the typical uh, seismic energy that might be produced due to things like uh, nuclear weapons testing, or which those seismo- seismometers are also used to detect, right. or in the case of what they were designed for, earthquakes themselves. Right. So landslides have a characteristic signal associated with those, and through uh, triangulation, um, one is able to detect or locate within an approximate distance where this likely had occurred. Columbia, of course, being a long way from northern BC, uh, for listeners to understand, Columbia University, rather. In this case, this is not the biggest of this kind. There, was, it, there have been bigger tsunamis, apparently, even in this country in the past. Yeah, that, that's right. And my, my colleague, uh, Martin Gertzma, I believe, as part of this uh, discussion, has sort of related, um, for example, Latoya Bay was mm-hmm. one of the, one of the notable, um, notable events that happened at, at the sort of last century. In Alaska. Whereby, right? In Alaska, that's right, mm-hmm. whereby you had a displacement wave that was something on the order of several hundred meters, um, much, much larger than what has uh, had occurred at Elliott Creek. Um, there was also smaller events than Elliott Creek, of course, uh, that have occurred. And they, you don't necessarily always need to have a glaciated environment for these things to, to occur. We know that as ice retreats, that is one of the situations that can destabilize slopes um, simply because that ice backstops or supports um, very steeply sloped uh, rock and colluvium. And once you remove that, that supporting structure of the ice as the ice retreats or thins, then you uh, are increasing the, the stress or the, the, the feeling of um, that material to give way from the hillside. Brian, this is your field of expertise. What are we seeing in terms of, of, of the retreating of glacier, glaciers in those areas and how much of a threat it is, is it for this, something like this to happen in an area that is more populated than what we saw in northern BC in November of 2020. So we ha- we know and have uh, known for some time that uh, glaciers have undergone retreat in the, the 20th century and, and now in the early 21st century. And what scientists have been able to show quite conclusively is the retreat that those glaciers are experiencing in the last 30 years in large part is due to, to humans and the, uh, the use of fossil fuels. And so as we warm the, the planet, uh, these glaciers are nourished by a winter snowfall and they're depleted by summer, largely in, in, by summer temperatures. And so anytime you can warm up the atmosphere, 
you can actually uh, increase the melt. And in some cases, uh, in some locations, Western Canada in particular, that melt has greatly accelerated in the last uh, 10 years and also in the last five years. And we don't expect that acceleration to slow down anytime soon. That is, we expect a wholesale deglaciation of many of our mountain environments by the end of this century, um, even under moderate emission scenarios. So any lasting lessons from this particular event uh, almost a year and a half ago now? I would say, Ben, one of the important lessons is that if we had not had that geospatial information, we would not be able to have done the detailed analysis. And and for that, um, it's really a call out uh, that we critically need good topographic data for many of uh, British Columbia's high mountains. It's critically important, not just for uh, geohazards, but also to assess uh, things like um, how glaciers respond and are, continue to respond to climate change, how we can monitor the province's water resources. But I'd also like to point out that one of the aspects of this study is that it was a co-creation of knowledge. Uh, two of the authors on our study were uh, from the Hamalco First Nation. And in fact, the chief of the Hamalco, Darren Blaney, was one of our co-authors. And we learned a lot about um, about Elliott Creek from the Hamalco, and we hope to continue to share what we know and what we find in terms of our scientific endeavors. So a great collaboration between local knowledge on the ground, the seismologists in Columbia, you here in, in, at the University of Northern British Columbia, all leading to at least an answer in this case. It's fascinating stuff, Brian. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. We'll head back to Ukraine for this story. Uh, the UN Migration Agency now estimates more than 11 million people have fled their homes since Russia's invasion 42 years ago, 42 days ago, rather. It has created a huge need for aid, uh, delivered any way possible these days. And that's where my next guest comes in. He's a former soldier, a Calgarian. He left Calgary to join the fight ostensibly against Russia. That's what he headed over there for. But when he realized he wasn't going to be provided a weapon, it wasn't quite what he thought it was going to be, he decided to leave that. But to stay, devote his time to something else. So Paul Hughes is now on the front lines, but he's not fighting. He's delivering aid wherever it's needed most. Joining me now is Calgary's Paul Hughes of Hugs that's helping Ukraine grassroots support. And he joins me from outside Lviv. Paul, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what have you managed to, I, I realize there's a lot of need. There's a lot of people trying to fill those needs in, in a very grassroots way, I understand. Uh, what have you managed to do and what are you doing now? Well, we're on a 16th mission here. Um, I managed to uh, meet a lot of Ukrainian people and start to work with them at a very grassroots level. And I can't emphasize grassroots um, uh, these are just people that are country. They believe in their country. Um, and uh, I decided to support them the best I could. Friends um, back home that decided to also uh, get behind the cause. And we've just rallied together. It's very community-based. It's very local-based. It's very uh, foundational in, in nature. And uh, one of the things they needed was food, shelter. So we started helping with that. So I was doing everything from uh, helping make food to making sandwiches, uh, helping people move their luggage, um, 
giving hugs and uh, we just tapped into the whole hug concept. It's uh, very Canadian uh, in nature. Giving somebody a hug uh, means a lot here right now. I can imagine. I understand you're actually bringing stuff to Bucha. We've seen a lot about Bucha in the last uh, 72 hours or so. What? Tell me a bit about that if you could. Well, absolutely deplorable. I mean, it's just, the images are shocking and, uh, you know, Putin's a war criminal. These people are war criminals. This is to target civilians the way they did is just uh, abhorrent. Uh, uh, anyway, it's, 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 it's massively overwhelming. But um, we are, we've uh, deployed to Buka and uh, other, other communities that need our help. And we're taking aid uh, primarily in the form of food because uh, those lines have been cut off. And um, these, these people are under immense uh, pressure. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just too much sometimes, but we're responding and we've got a good team of people that are taking, uh, medical supplies, food, shelter supplies, uh, anything that we possibly, like these, these vans are packed. Like we get the biggest guys possible to just keep ramming stuff into these vans. So, um, we do everything we possibly can. So, Paul, is that what you do? You just try to collect as many supplies as you can, cram them into a van, and take off to where they're needed? Yeah. So we've got three vans that are operational right now. Um, because of the money that has been given to us by Canadians, uh, we've been able to purchase vans, and we've been able to mobilize and take supplies to where they're needed. This is very critical, incredibly critical. How is this for you? I mean, you're you're used to to grassroots work in Calgary. You've done this uh, a lot. You were also a soldier at one point. How has that all come together to help you right now? Uh, well, I'm very fortunate to have had the experiences that I've had. Uh, it's prepared me somewhat for this from an operational perspective, from an emotional perspective. Nothing could ever prepare you for this. I I've had a, a few personal moments uh but um you just you just deal with it these people are dealing with it they have a, an incredible spirit and you just you're inspired by by these people I've, I've seen hundreds of thousands of moms and children and absolute despair and they just they just keep moving on and um they're very they're very resilient people incredibly resilient people so from a logistical perspective i'm well prepared and i was able to um and and then with the team of people we have people from sweden we have people people from the uk from the usa uh from the ukraine um everybody we're all working together to try to make something happen here we're just a band of uh brothers and sisters from different mothers and uh we're doing everything that we possibly can what are the biggest challenges for you right now paul um <laughs> The language has been a real, a real challenge, but um, just trying to make it work. Um, people are working together. We're finding ways to work around a system that is absolutely not prepared for this. Um, you know, uh, you can only imagine any country in the world that's all of a sudden, all of a sudden being attacked by a superpower. And, you know, you, the Ukrainian people are peaceful people. They're incredibly peaceful. They do not want this war. And Putin has decided to unleash uh, just absolute travesties on the, on these people. So, but they're responding and they're inspiring. I'm completely inspired. I've never, I've never seen this type of humanity before in my life. And I, I don't think I ever will.
Paul, I mean, that's well put. I mean, you, you went over there with one intention to sort of fight Russians, and now you find yourself in a very different role. Uh, has it all been worth it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been here for a month. I've been here for one month. It feels like I've been here for five years. I have never experienced anything like this. And uh, if that was all I did in my life, I would feel like I've accomplished something. So, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's every, everything, everything life could throw at you. And so it's, 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 it's chaos and it's beauty. It's, it's everything. All at once. What would you like Canadians to know, listeners here to know about what's happening there? What do we need to know? Uh, well, um, there are certain things that are required here, but the primary thing that's required right here right now um, is, well, the support of every Canadian possible. Um, you know, Putin is a, a bully. And how do, how do Canadians respond to bullies? What do we do when somebody bullies somebody? We, we stand up to them. And these people are standing up and they need, they need the continued support of Canadians. And right now our organization is grassroots. We're, I don't even know these people. We just go in, we hand everything to them and we leave. We, we give them a hug and we say, here you go, do your best. And they carry it on. So, um, uh, you know, the, I guess the most important thing right now for our organization to help these people more is some funds. I don't, we don't care if it's $2, but try to help our organization because we're helping uh, the Ukrainian people right now. Every single cent that we're provided with is going into Ukraine. We have no overhead. We have a community that has a school. It's a very small town, 200 people. They have given us their entire school. We are living in their school. They're, the, the women... And the men are coming. They're they're helping us with our laundry. They're they're feeding us, and we just keep going out on missions. We just keep going on missions. We come back, we're exhausted. They feed us. We get our sleep. We go back out again. I I, I don't know how else to put it. It's very very, it's very complex and it's very simple. But they have a lot of the supplies here that they need, and we're just moving it forward. We just keep moving it forward. So part of the problem here right now is logistics, and we're providing that logistics support. A lot of people don't want to go into these hot zones and we're willing to do it. You know how long you're going to stay, Paul? Um, I'm going to stay until this job is done. And I, I don't have a crystal ball that works. I don't know if anybody <laughs> here has a crystal ball that works. So we're just going to keep going. So right now the plan is uh, we, we think until roughly August, we need to help these people get back on their feet. Even if the war ends, there is such a, uh, the challenges here are overwhelming. They had challenges even before the war started. And uh, this, this, this entire situation is as chaotic as you could possibly imagine times 10. Um, uh, yeah, we're, um, we're not going anywhere. Everybody is committed to helping the Ukrainian people because they're working hard. When you see people, these people working the way they're working and the support that they're giving us and we're, we're here to help them and they're helping us. It's, it's, they just dig so deep. I've, uh, they're just amazing. They're just so inspiring. Paul, any one moment that really stands out to you so far? Uh, uh, too many, too many. Every day is a hundred different moments in a day. But I think that little boy that was playing with that piece of cardboard and pretending that it was a truck uh, just keeps coming back to me all the time. He had this child had nothing. His mother had nothing. Everything they had from from Kharkiv was in a bag, and uh, he was just 
He had a smile on his face. He was playing with a piece of cardboard, a piece of goddamn cardboard. And this kid had a smile on his face and his mom was smiling. And, you know, um, I, I don't know. I don't want to say, man, about this. I, I really don't. I'm sorry. No, um, no, no. Is this too much? Is this too much? Well, keep up the great work, Paul. Thank you so much for talking to me and uh, stay strong. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time.